rainwater harvesting is not only um, legal here, it is actually um, encouraged gray water harvesting as well. So using the gray water from our sink and from our shower, um, we can send that right out into the landscape and there's no issues with that. It's actually encouraged to do that out here because of it, because it is a desert. There's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of leniency out here to basically really do whatever you want to do. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 53 with Derek Handyman Howlett. I reached out to Derek about an interview and he wrote back, quote, frankly, at this point, I'm pretty sick of the tiny house, so I'm not sure I'd be the best guest talking about it. So I knew I had to ask him on the show. So we started off by talking about what about his tiny house is no longer working for him and his wife, but we wound up talking about many facets of Derek and Hannah's off-grid lifestyle, including solar, rainwater harvesting, gray water, cooking, internet, and more. Derek and Hannah are the real deal. They live off-grid in a tiny house, and they document pretty much everything on their YouTube channel. So it's a great interview, and I hope you stick around. Really quick before we get started, if you're listening to this on Friday, then there's just about one day left for the 2019 Tiny House Bundle Sale. The Tiny House Bundle is something that I put together once per year, and this year it's 29 Tiny House plans, ebooks, courses, and videos valued at over $980, available for just $49. The whole deal expires on Saturday at 12 p.m. Eastern. So to see the lineup, which includes D. Williams's Go House Go book, uh, the tiny home plans from Andrew and Gabriella Morrison, 12 issues of the Tiny House magazine. These are all past podcast guests. There are lots of great products in this bundle, and you can get them all for $49 just until tomorrow, Saturday at noon Eastern. So to learn more and check it out, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash bundle. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash bundle. Thanks for your support. All right, I'm here with Derek Handyman Howlett. Derek is a digital entrepreneur in Southern Arizona with his wife, Hannah. Together, they built a 24-foot-long tiny house and have been living in it together for the past two years completely off-grid. He documented his entire tiny house build and his unique projects on his YouTube channel, Handyman. That's with two E's instead of a Y. Derek Howlett, welcome to the show. Awesome, Ethan. So glad to be here. Me too. I'm glad this happened because I reached out to you about an interview to talk about your off-grid tiny house setup. And you wrote back, frankly, at this point, I'm pretty sick of the tiny house, so I'm not sure I'd be the best guest talking about it. And I was like, no, that's why I need to have you on the show, because people need to hear about things about tiny house living that aren't all sunshine and roses. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, when I first learned about um, tiny houses in general, I watched the documentary Tiny and I was really amazed by it. And at that point, I was uh, I was just a single guy. And I was just really amazed that um, I can't remember the guy's name in in that documentary, but he built his own tiny house by himself, um, obviously with the help of some friends and some family. And I was just like amazed. I was like, wow, you know, I didn't really want to go the route of buying um, like a standard house and getting a mortgage and kind of going down that route. So when I 
understood like, you know, you can build these houses for relatively cheap, you know, between maybe 20 or $30,000. I thought it was obviously much more practical for me. And since I was very, I was living a very transient life. So I was traveling all over the place. I really was drawn to the idea that the house could be moved to wherever I wanted. So that's why I was certainly initially attracted to it. Um, and now that we've been living in it for a couple of years, I would say that our circumstance is probably a little bit different than most people. So my wife and I, we both work from home and we're around each other 24 seven. So we don't really have a job to go to or anything like that. We just, we work from home. And so we're typically around each other all the time. Um, I'm in one loft, she's in another loft. And so there's not a lot of um, space, I guess, between us. Yeah, I could hardly imagine because, you know, when when my wife is home and we're at the tiny house, I feel like I can't get anything done. Although my house also kind of similar circumstances have changed. When I built it, it was just me. And then I kind of met Anne while, well, no, we had already met, but we got more serious and then ended up getting married. And so the tiny house design wasn't really uh, optimized for a life together. Yeah, I can, to- I can totally understand that. And especially how it might change. Um, probably when you're building it and designing it, you would have gone probably a different route if you knew that there's going to be two people living in there. Because it certainly does change the dynamic of the whole thing. So like, especially even like with our kitchen, even though our kitchen is, um, I would say it's probably a larger kitchen and it's kind of a unique design that because we have a breakfast bar and we also have a full-size fridge. Um, but the two of us really can't be in there working together. Um, so yeah, it, it does kind of get a little bit tight at, at some times, but overall I would say a lot of the, a lot of the pros certainly outweigh some of the cons, but we're just kind of at a point in our life where we're, we want to have children and having children in a tiny house is not, you know, it's, it's probably, it's not, uh, it's probably not really going to work out too well with having kids in here. So we, we do have plans on, uh, building basically a larger house on our property out here. So it sounds like it's mainly a space issue. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would say it's certainly just kind of like a space issue. So even if we had a slightly larger tiny house, um, maybe not something that is on a trailer, but something that is on a foundation that was, you know, between 400 to 600 square feet and we had a couple of separate rooms, then I think it would work out a lot better. Have you considered building you know, two small structures that would serve as each of your kind of respective offices rather than kind of scrapping it and building a whole bigger house? We've kind of, well, right now I'm actually in the process of building a garage. So that's in the garage, I'm going to have office space for myself. And um, then it would kind of alleviate kind of the living situation. But on our property, um, we can't actually live in this tiny house full time for the rest of our lives. So we had three years to basically be able to build a, a normal size home. And that's obviously going to be an issue that a lot of people are going to come across when they're, you know, say they will want to buy a piece of property or a piece of land. Typically, for the most part, um, in most counties around the United States and around North America, is that it's going to be difficult to be able to park that tiny house there and live in it legally full time. But just because of the rules in our county, we're able to live in our tiny house, which to the county is classified as an as an RV, as like a recreational vehicle. So we're able to live in it for three years while the other house house is being built. Okay, so this was kind of preset from the beginning that you needed to be 
building the next house in order to live legally in your quote unquote RV on that land. Correct. Yeah. So initially, yeah, we, we always had the idea that this wasn't going to be like a permanent um, solution for the rest of our lives. Um, you know, it was it was a great experience, obviously, building it. So I built it entirely myself in Tucson with the help of a few a few friends. And Hannah helped me out every now and then. Um, so it was a great experience. And it has been beneficial that we're able to get out of the city. And we do live out in like the boondocks, we'll call it. So we just we don't live like out in the middle of nowhere. Um, we're only about 10 minutes from the closest town to us that has like hardware stores and grocery stores and has all the amenities that we want. So we're not too far out in the middle of nowhere, but uh, we do love the space that we have right now. So did you have uh, much or any building experience before you built this house? I did. And this is one reason why I felt very confident that I was going to be able to build it myself. So when I was living in Canada, um, I think I was uh, 20 or 21 when I worked as an electrician uh, for about four and a half years. So that did give me a lot of construction experience with um, doing electrical. But a lot of what I learned or the way that I learned how to build this tiny house was actually just watching a lot of YouTube videos. So the couple that comes to mind, especially is the tiny nest couple. So Jake and Kiva, I've watched their entire build series, um, probably at least two or three times just to really get a good idea of the framing process and, you know, the siding process, installing windows, installing doors. And, um, I really just relied on YouTube to basically give me the confidence so that I could even, so that I could do it myself. That's awesome. And you've actually kind of I would say that you've given back because your channel is just a wealth of information and you've taken it well beyond just the building of the tiny house. Can you talk a bit about some of the other major projects that you've undertaken, you know, in addition to the house? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I would certainly say that my tiny house build series on YouTube is one of the best series of tiny house videos. I, I don't really keep up with it now, so I'm sure there's a lot of new series that where people have built a tiny house from start to finish. Um, but when we moved out here, I also documented all, all the other projects that we did. So we live completely on rainwater right now in southern Arizona. So we only get about 11 or 12 inches of rain per year. So with a tiny house, the, the roof size is only about 200 square feet, and then we have a th um, an awning off one side of it, which is about 300 square feet. So total roof space is only about 500 square feet. And just doing some basic calculations of how many how many gallons of water that we're going to be able to capture, I knew that I had to come up with a new solution for basically being able to capture water so that we could actually live off-grid for a water sense. So we definitely don't have any connection to any city water or anything like that. So what people typically do out here is they just drill a well. And so what I ended up doing was I built what I call a rain roof. So I built it's about 2,900 square feet. It's a, it's a roof that is just off the ground and it gravity feeds into our main water tank. So we have about 14,000 gallons of water capacity out here. And the reason why that we need so much water capacity is that there are certain periods of the year where we don't really get any measurable rain for about three or four months. So we're actually probably coming up to that point pretty soon. Um, typically at this time until probably the middle towards end of July 
is when we start getting our monsoon season and our and our water tanks get filled up. So we go for about three or four months without getting any rain. So we have to make sure basically at this point of the year that we have enough water to be able to get us to that point. So that's one reason why we have so many so much water capacity. Um, if we lived in a place, say like in uh, the Pacific Northwest where we we're getting rain, you know, pretty well consistently and we we're getting 40 or 50 inches of rain per year, um, you probably almost could capture enough water just off this awning and off the house to be able to get enough water throughout the year. But what's really cool is that I've been able to measure and um, basically calculate how many gallons of water that, that we use on a monthly and daily basis. So we typically use around about a thousand or maybe 1200 gallons of water per, um, per month. So that only works out to about 30 to 40 gallons per day. And then the other cool feature of um, our tiny house is that we um, is that our solar system basically provides all the electrical needs that we need for us. So living in southern Arizona, obviously we have a lot of sunny days. So doing solar out here is considerably easier than in other places. For example, the Pacific Northwest, um, it would actually be, I think it would be quite difficult to do solar up there just because there are so many cloudy days. And I have lived in Vancouver for um, quite, quite a long period of time. So I know, especially during the winter months where it's very gloomy and, and it's raining all the time, that would be quite difficult to do it. But um, yeah, what's really cool about our solar system is that you know the panels are standard, the inverter, the charge controller are standard as well. But our battery system is using um, basically batteries that came from a fully, fully electric smart car. So you can actually use batteries that come from electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles, and you can use them in in their in an off-grid solar setup, which is really awesome. What are the benefits of using a battery system like that? So the cost of lithium-ion batteries, if you were to buy them new just from like a solar store, they can be quite expensive. So the great thing about using uh, recycled batteries, now these aren't these aren't batteries that are totally dead. Typically, with a hybrid car or with a fully electric vehicle like a Tesla is that the batteries have to be changed out every so many thousand or hundred thousand miles. So I don't know the exact number, but typically when you get to about 80% of their original capacity, you want to change them out. So say for example, your car originally had 300 miles of range. Typically when it gets down to about 230, 240 miles of capacity or of range, then people are more likely to want to change them out just because they want to have that capacity and they want to have that range to be able to drive long distances. So when the batteries are at that point and they get taken out of a car or say like a Tesla gets into an accident, um, even though the car might be wrecked, the battery still might be in really good shape. So we can reuse those batteries as opposed to recycling them or trashing them. Fascinating. I want to back up actually back to water because I had some follow-up questions about that sure. setup. Um, does it ever freeze where you are? I know that the desert can actually get quite cold. Is that an issue where you are? Specifically where we're at? So um, our temperatures don't get too crazy low down here. So we do get into the 20s and sometimes into the high teens. Um, but that's typically just overnight. So even though um, it does get below freezing, the freezing temperature does not freeze the water in the tanks because there's just so much water in them. Um, but sometimes our pipes coming into the house do get a little frozen, so we might not have um, pressurized water just for, you know, maybe an hour or two in the morning. Okay, yeah, and I guess that makes sense. It would take a long time of cold temperatures to, to get 14,000 gallons of water down to freezing. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Did you choose your location based on its kind of, I don't want to say ease because nothing is easy about being off grid, but did you choose it because you knew that it had the sunlight and enough water that you could do off grid? Or did you kind of choose the location first and then decide to be off grid? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I knew specifically for the water situation, there's um, my buddy Joe, his YouTube channel is called Homesteadonomics. And he has been living primarily on rainwater for the last seven or eight years. And so just actually through watching his YouTube videos, I understood that living on rainwater was certainly possible. And he has like flush toilets and he has a family. So and he's not even that super like low water conservative. So I knew just by mimicking his system in terms of the size of the collection surface and for the amount of uh, water capacity that he has, I knew that obviously for our house, just for Hannah and myself um, and having a composting toilet that we would have no problems just doing straight rainwater. Um, we originally, so I'm from Canada originally, Hannah's from Minnesota and we moved down to Tucson and we just really loved the area. We loved the dry climate here. Uh, there's just so many beautiful mountains in the area. So we have lots of great hiking trails. So we kind of picked the location specifically because we, cause we really, we really like it. But specifically in this County here, which is called Cochise County is that they have what's called a builder owner opt out. So on our property, um, because of the zoning of it is that we can actually build any kind of structure that we want. So whether it is a, a natural earth building. So if you're doing like straw bale, cob, um, rammed earth or uh, like a earthship style building, it's definitely one of the best places that you can do it in the United States because you can, up, all you basically have to do is tell them where you're building it, the size of it, and they come and check. The, the only things that they inspect is they inspect the setback distances. So they basically just say, did you build it where you're going to build it? And you say yes, and they come out and inspect that, and that's it. So there's a lot of leniency and there's a lot of freedom out here to basically build whatever you want to build. So they only seem to care about the zoning and not about anything else. Yeah. And rainwater harvesting is not only um, legal here. It is actually um, encouraged gray water harvesting as well. So using the gray water from our sink and from our shower, um, we can send that right out into the landscape and there's no issues with that. It's actually encouraged to do that out here because of it, because it is a desert. There's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of leniency out here to basically really do whatever you want to do. And so even with living in a tiny house, I know if you're going to be building your own house, say you're going to be building a full size home somewhere um, around the United States is that they might only give you the leniency of living in an RV on your property for about 30 or 60 days. And obviously for a county to really stay on top of that, it's something that is typically only um, done by complaint. So if your neighbors complain, oh, you know, like John and John and Susie, they've been living in their RV for like four years on their property, then the county would probably come out and check it out. Um, but out here, it's really lenient. And the county is kind of, uh, it's not a very, I guess, abundant county and that there is like a, a huge metropolis or anything like that. So the county doesn't have a lot of resources in order to enforce a lot of the uh, the permits and the zoning and the, and the codes and stuff. It's surprising that they even care that much to to put a limit on, you know, three years in your RV. Like, it's surprising that they're not just like, sure, you can live in an RV if you want. 
See, the thing is, like, we we have friends out here that have been living in RVs for, you know, four or five years. It's, like I said, it's really done by complaints. So we could, you know, do. I've been trying to do everything by the book as much as I can because with being on social media and with being on YouTube is that people can be, um, they can be assholes. So they, they could report me to the county. So I want to try to do everything by the book so that I don't get in trouble for it. Ah, okay. So because you're kind of higher profile person, you want to be extra careful. Yeah. So, I mean, if I wasn't on social media, I could probably just get away with living in this for as long as we wanted. Um, but yeah, we, we do want to have some, some more space and we do plan on having children. So having a larger house is something that we've always kind of wanted anyways. So by my count, if you've been there for two years, then you only have one more year to build a full-size house. That's correct, yeah. Are you are you pushing for that? Are you going to build a house in the next year? I'm probably, I'm not going to be building it myself, so we're just going to have a local builder come out and do a house for us. Um, just because I've done, like, doing the tiny house build and doing this garage build, it's been, it's, it's obviously a considerable amount of work. So Huge amount um, of work. Yeah, even the tiny house itself. So I remember when I was building it, I think it took me about five or six months to do, and I was working typically between 30 to 50 hours per week on it. And like I, I do enjoy construction, and I do love doing projects like this, but I like doing things on a much smaller scale. So I want to get into more interesting things that interest me, kind of like metalworking and woodworking, um, not necessarily big construction projects, even like a tiny house. I would still consider it to be a, quite a large construction project for most people. Yeah, I, I'm, and you can't. I can't stress that enough. That you know, when you watch people's builds online, everything is just so condensed, and it feels so doable, which it is. But it's also just very exhausting, and it's a lot of work. Yeah, things that you probably would not think would take a lot of time typically take the longest so it's always really exciting like when you get the walls up and you frame them all up and you're like wow I'm progressing through this so fast right like I got the walls up it looks like a house but then when when you start doing you know the sheeting and then you start doing the siding and then you start doing all the like all the windows and all the doors and um, then when you get to you know finishing the inside and doing all like everything just ends up you know, taking a considerable amount of time. And especially if you're not experienced, then it can certainly take obviously much longer. And for most people, they don't have the the flexibility within their schedule as well. And so I know it, it typically takes a lot of people at least one to two years to build their tiny house if they can't work on it full time. Um, and I would say that that's a pretty realistic expectation. But like I, um, since my wife and I, we work from home, I was able to not have to work so much online and be able to focus on building this house full time and then obviously posting it to YouTube as well, which adds even more time. I'd say it adds at least 20, 20 to 30% in terms of time because I'm you know, setting up my camera, taking different shots, explaining what I'm doing and trying to come across as someone who is educated and knowledgeable about what I'm actually doing. Yeah, I can, I can barely imagine doing a YouTube series and building. When I was building mine, I put up a WordPress blog with the intention of kind of writing a daily and then it became like every other day and then it became like weekly like roundup of what I was doing and after like two months I was just like I'm not doing this like I don't have any energy at the end of the day to 
I don't want to like think about what I just did. I just want to like relax. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember even when I was like framing the walls, I think it took me about four or five days to frame all the walls for this. And by the end of doing all that framing, like my body was shot. Like I was like my lower back was really sore just from all the bending over. Um, and I needed to take like rest and recovery days just from doing all the construction because it is very physical. It's very laborious. And yeah, it, it, it's quite a bit of work. So you mentioned that your gray water feeds back into your landscape. Um, what is your toilet setup in the tiny house? So we just do the five gallon bucket method like most people just because it's really easy to set up. It's inexpensive. And then we just use... Um, uh, sawdust that we get from actually a place that recycles pallets in Tucson. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, which is really unique because obviously out here in the desert, there's not really like lumber mills or anything like that. So I was, I just, I think I just typed in like sawdust Tucson and I came across this place that just has tons of sawdust all the time, which was great. Um, so we actually do it a little bit different. So we actually go, we have compost, um, compostable bags that we poop in. Okay. And then we also have a, a diver diverter on the front. So all of our urine actually goes out to our trees. Right. into the, Okay. So separate from the gray water, it goes directly to the trees. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then the bags, it makes it easier to empty the bucket, I, I would imagine. And those go into an external compost pile somewhere. Yeah, it does. Yeah. We just really didn't want to get into having clean it out all the time. And um, it just it just makes the whole setup a lot easier. But pretty well, everybody else that I know that does composting, uh, composting toilet, they just do it right into a bucket and then they clean it out. Yeah, that's what we do. It's I mean, it's a little gross, but it's actually it's not that bad. There's something about like when you're emptying the bucket, it's just like all sawdust. It doesn't feel like you're emptying a bucket full of poop. Yeah, Which we you never kind of are, but it yeah. doesn't feel like <laughs> Yeah, we just I think we just started doing the the bags right from the get-go, so we've never actually done it just like by pooping straight into the buckets, so I don't know. Yeah, I've never done it, so go with what works. Exactly, yeah. And it, it just kind of makes things a little bit easier. It's one less chore to do. We basically just take the bag out, throw it in the throw it in our compost bin, and it it'll, it'll compost over time, so. Yeah, absolutely. Now I've I've heard that well I know that compost actually needs a lot of water to to break down properly which is one of the reasons why um the human or handbook um kind of recommends mixing the urine and the solids because you need that water have you had to actually add water to your compost pile Yeah so I typically when it does rain um I basically take the cover off of our compost um bins so that it it can get some extra water but I do periodically just go in and just add some water in there every once in a while. Interesting. Yeah. In Vermont, we have like the opposite problem. There's like too much water. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I can certainly see that. Yeah. Yeah. So this next house, uh, the the bigger house, are, how big are we talking? And are you are you going with kind of an alternative building method like an earthship or straw bale or anything like that? So it's probably going to be around 2,000 square feet. So it is going to be a more standard size home. Um, and this like this is going to be our forever home. So it's it's going to be what we're going to be living in for the rest of our lives. So we want it to be comfortable. We want to have everything in there that we really want. So we want to have like a really big kitchen, a nice dining area. It's going to have three bedrooms because we plan on having two children. 
Um, but it is just going to be built in a conventional style. So just with typical two by six framing. Um, and that like originally when we moved out here, I really wanted to build my own house, but I've just kind of grown tired of doing it. And probably one of the more, uh, struggles that I've had is being able to outsource. So I'm very much like DIY minded. So I always want to do things myself, but then I realize maybe this is, maybe I'm chewing off a little bit more than I can actually chew. And so it just comes to a point where it's like, I, I'm doing these construction projects and, and I enjoy them to a certain extent, but I also feel like my time can be better u- utilized in other places as well. And so that's really the struggle that I've kind of had with doing a lot of these construction projects is that I just, I'm just not as passionate about doing big construction projects as I used to be. And I thought, you know, oh, it would be great just to be able to do it myself. Um, but then at the same time, it's like, if I am able to spend more time on our business then I can easily make the money that will actually pay for the house, like, and just have somebody else do it. So it comes down to, you know, exactly, you know, what I'm passionate about and what I value the most and what I want to be spending my time, the majority of my time on. But even when they're going to be building the house, I still want to be a part of it and help them out, you know, wherever I can. But I'm also not totally 100 percent reliant on getting it finished. Yeah, that's a really great point about just valuing your time. And I think that's something that people need to take into account when they are thinking about building their own tiny house. You know, I like to tell people that it takes about a thousand hours to build a tiny house. And when you told me that you did five to six months at 30 hours per week, I did some quick napkin math. And it that's like just between seven, it's like under 800 hours, which is actually great. Um, but what you have to look at is, you know, how much do you make? And, you know, comparing the cost of a professionally built tiny house to your own is the hourly rate that you pay yourself, like, does that work out? Because it might actually Mm -hmm. make more sense to continue working whatever job you do or whatever business you run and then just pay somebody else for their time to do the building. Well, that's kind of like what you did as well, because I know that you had a guy that helped you build your house. And that was really helpful for you, obviously, to be able to learn the construction process, but also make it a little bit easier on you so that you're not spending nearly as much time doing it. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was like analysis paralysis. I was like going so slow, kind of obsessing over every little thing and and really just not feeling confident. So, you know, hiring somebody to work with me, you know, one or two days a week to get me started on those, each project, each phase of the house um, was super valuable. I mean, it certainly added a lot of cost to the build, but I maintain that I may never have fought, like just finished. I might have just run out of steam before I had even started had I not Mm -hmm. hired Jason. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I think I've read your, I think, do you have a book or a guide or something like that? I'm pretty sure I read through it and that's how I learned about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Tiny House Decisions. And I do, I kind of detail that, that process in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So especially for people like if you are a professional and say you you earn a good salary, I mean, I would certainly tend towards going towards the uh, go towards the route of hiring somebody either just building the shell because the shell is definitely the the hardest part of it. So getting the walls up, um, doing the siding, doing the roofing. Um, But if you're pretty if you're kind of handy, 
the inside is not necessarily that bad. So putting together the kitchen, doing um, some of the electrical, doing some of the plumbing, even the flooring, it's pretty easy to do. It's not that hard to actually do it. So trying to find some kind of compromise there. Um, if you're not fully confident in building the entire thing yourself and you don't really want to spend the time doing it, then certainly look to outsource it. So not counting your time, what was the cost of, of your build? I think it came out to about $35,000. It was the approximate cost. I mean, it could have been significantly cheaper, I would say, in, in, in some aspects. Um, so like the kitchen that we that we put in there is probably about $5,000 worth of stuff. So just between the cabinets and the countertops, because we just got like really nice countertops and we didn't really kind of spare any expense for some of it. But um, I'm just trying to think probably the siding could have been could have been done quite a bit cheaper as well. But yeah, it was about $35,000 for all the materials. Yes. And then plus 800 hours of your labor for free. Plus. Absolutely. Yes. That too. Which when you think of it, like I value my time like pretty highly. So I would value it at least between fifty to hundred dollars an hour. So if you if you factor that in as well, then it's it, the cost goes up quite significantly. Yeah, at the low end, that's that's forty thousand dollars worth of time. Damn. You don't want to yeah. don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't want to think about that. Yeah. So. What will you do with the tiny house uh, when you transition to the larger home? So I like we we want to have a place here so that, you know, friends and family can visit us. And just the tiny house itself, it is completely self-sufficient for, you know, water and for solar. So it's actually a really cool teaching tool. Um, so obviously having, you know, like friends and family being able to come out here. But something in the future, like I do a lot of tours of our place as well. So people come out and check out the tiny house. Um, I've got one coming up at the end of March. It's um, in uh, partnership with the University of Arizona. So they have like a, like a, it's called the WaterWise program. And so they go and tour different places in the area that are utilizing um, unique kind of rainwater harvesting techniques. And so obviously my property specifically is very unique in terms of the rainwater harvesting that we have going on here. So it is kind of like a cool teaching tool. And if at some point in the future, you know, our kids are like, oh, I don't want to live in the house with you guys, then they can go live in the tiny house. So it, it is certainly going to serve a purpose. Um, we could also possibly even Airbnb it if we wanted to. So it's not necessarily like we only lived in it for three years and then it's just kind of we're just kind of kicking it aside. Um, it can certainly serve some other purposes as well. Yeah. And I've always felt like even when I was building my house that it was more worth having than selling just like just like you said it could become a spare room it could become an airbnb it could become a guest space a teaching tool the resale value of tiny houses doesn't really seem to quite be there yet so it's almost worth it just to to keep it around if you can yeah and ours is in such a precarious position right now and um, like with the fence that we built around it and with the awning that we have on it, it would take a good amount of time and it'd be very difficult to even get it out. So I don't even think it would be worth it. Like I'm just, I would just think about it and just be like, oh man, like I don't, I don't even think I want to try to get the tiny house out of where it is right now because we've kind of like locked it in and I don't, I don't really want to move it, but yeah, I don't, I can't see me getting 
a lot of money for this tiny house. Like I don't, I don't think it would even be worth it to sell it. So it would be much more useful and beneficial just to keep it as it is. And your house is on wheels, right? It is. Yeah. So why did you decide to put it on wheels when you were building it at your own land and knew that it was going to stay there? Was it just because of this RV kind of loophole? So initially when we started building this, and this is a really good tip, is we didn't know exactly where we we're going to put it. So we actually we didn't own our property when ah. I started building the tiny house. So we didn't know if we were going to travel around with it or we didn't really know what was going to happen. So that's why, um, you know, in retrospect, if we we're to do this again, I would just build a house on a foundation that would be just probably a little bit larger than this one. And yeah, I would probably have gone that route. Yeah. Just call it a day. Yeah. So yeah, that's one, that's one tip that I always give people on YouTube. It's like, if, if you are thinking about building your own house and you're like, I know there's always this like huge allure of like the tiny house on wheels and you know, you see the really awesome Instagram photos on, um, or photos on Instagram and on Pinterest and you're like, wow, that looks so cool. I would certainly consider either building something slightly larger if you're not necessarily sure of your future living situation. Um, the tiny house can, the size can get a little annoying at some times, um, but it really depends on your personal situation and it's like a case-by-case -case basis. Do you have any other advice for people who, you know, think that may think that they want to be living tiny forever and just kind of how to make it last if that is the case? Yeah, definitely. You want to live in a good climate. So one thing that I love living about here in Southern Arizona is that our winters are obviously pretty mild and the summers are a little bit hot. But for the most part, like I was out, you know, working on the garage for about five hours this morning. Um, so we're able to go outside a lot more because the weather is very favorable throughout most of the year. Like it's typically around the, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. It's not very humid. So that's one reason why I love the desert. It's because you can spend so much more time outside. Um, so oh, if you, if like even Hannah and I talked about this, we, we would probably be at each other's throats if we lived in a place like Minnesota or something like that, where the winters are just absolutely brutal. And there's just not that, uh, that time that you can really spend outside. And so that's one big thing that I would certainly recommend to people is like really highly consider exactly where it's going to be. And obviously like in your book, you mentioned um, thinking about the location specifically because that changes some of the things that you're going to be building in the house as well. So like, are you going to be using a wood fireplace or can you get away with a mini split? So specifically where we live, we can get away with a mini split for both heating and cooling. Whereas like if we lived in a place that got, you know, down to minus 20, minus 30, the mini split probably wouldn't work at all. I don't think. Right. They go down to like negative 15 and then they, they lose efficiency. Yeah. So yeah, they start losing efficiency and it might not necessarily be the best option. So knowing where you want to put it, it'll certainly impact a lot of the decisions that you make. And I think picking a location, obviously if it's a tiny house and it's on wheels, you can move it wherever you want. So if you want to live in California or Texas or maybe New Mexico, some of the Southern states where the weather can be much more favorable throughout the year, I think that's always a good decision. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody who travels in a in a school bus with his family, and he said that all the bus people and van lifers go to to San Diego for the winter. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. which makes sense for the for that. Absolutely. Yeah, and 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 that's the cool thing about having something on wheels is that you can travel around with the weather. So if you're not exactly sure where you want to be living for the rest of your life, or if you even do want to pick a place to live for the rest of your life, is that um, have you ever had Chris and Cherie from Technomadia on here? They live in they live in a bus. No. Yeah, they're a cool couple. I will take that as a recommendation. Yeah, and, and they actually just got into sailing as well recently. So they actually live on a sailboat, I think, part of the year. Um, and then they also have a bus conversion that they did. And uh, like an old kind of like Greyhound bus conversion. It looks really cool. Sweet. And yeah, they basically say like, hey, you know, if the weather is not good here, just pick up and move to where it is nice. Um, so we even have friends that bought a, uh, bought a van conversion and they're just down in Florida right now. And now the weather in Canada is probably going to be getting a, a little bit nicer in March and in April. So then they can kind of migrate back to Canada. Yeah. And I will, I will share and say that and add to what you're saying is that a tiny house on wheels is not that is not easy to travel with at all. I mean, you see people doing it. But for me, the, I, I don't own a vehicle that can tow my tiny house. And the few times that I've towed it, it was kind of terrifying and daunting. And I know that that would get easier. But just the gas mileage that you get, the, the fact that it's a stick-framed structure that you're dragging down the road, they really aren't that geared to travel. So if you are looking to be on the road all the time, a van, a school bus... Even an RV, I know that's a dirty word in the tiny house world, might be a better choice for you because they are more geared toward the mobility. Absolutely. And that's another thing that, you know, I would say is not like an issue, but something that is a drawback with a tiny house is that it's not really designed to be moved that much. Um, I would be like, I just think of all the little clever designs that RVs and um, conversions will have. Like our drawers would just be flying around in, in the house because it's they're just like standard drawers, right? Like they're not designed to be because um, they, they, like in RVs and stuff, they have like little locks on them so that they don't keep flying out. Like little things like that that you don't necessarily think about. Some of our like we have a, like a big glass sliding door like that thing. Obviously, if we were going to move it, we'd, we'd lock it into place. But like little things like that. And yeah, stick frame building is not necessarily designed to be moving, even though we over-design these things considerably um, compared to the standard home, um, it's still not something that you want to be moving that often. I agree completely. Um, so you and your wife, actually, I believe it was her YouTube channel or her website. I don't know how I found it, but you are who turned me on to the Instant Pot, and you have an awesome cookbook called Epic Vegan Instant Pot Cooking, and I'm actually going to make curry in a hurry this afternoon for a dinner party. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, that is a favorite in this house. How many Instant Pots do you have in your tiny house? We actually, well, we originally had the six-quart um, Instant Pot, and we actually found that it was actually too big for the two of us. So we actually downsized to the three-quarter one. So we do have the three quart one that we use all the time, and then we actually store our six quart tiny um, tiny house, instant pot outside of the tiny house. 
So we have we, we technically have two, but we only really use one most of the time. Unless there's something like we're cooking, you know, two or three pounds of potatoes at once, then we'll use the big one. And for some of the bigger meals, then we'll just we'll we'll whip out the big one. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoy the book. Actually, funny story with that book. It's actually not called Epic Vegan Instant Pot Cooking anymore. Oh no, it's called, why not? Because Instant Pot filed a copyright <gasps> on the name. Um, oh, no. because I, I, th- I think it's because it has like swear words and stuff in it. Ah. So th- it's called Epic. So we just changed it to Epic Vegan Pressure Cooking. Okay. Okay. I can <laughs> so handle that. Basically, it's basically the same thing. It's, a, it's the exact same book. It's just a new title. All right. Well, Instant Pot, I'm very disappointed in you, but, um, I understand. Yeah. It's really annoying because we have sold so many of those books and because of selling so many of those books, we have sold so many instant pots, like probably in the thousands, um, just through like our social media presence, because we still, we, we still really like it and we still promote it. Sometimes we're a little bit more hesitant now, but, uh, we still really like it. We're just kind of, I'm just kind of annoyed with that company. It's a great, uh, kitchen appliance for a tiny house. I I've kind of, in our house, we have a three burner, 17 inch gas range. And, you know, it's these three little burners, they're kind of close together. And I feel like between an instant pot, like one induction cooktop, and like one of those Breville toaster ovens that are like really nice, like we could have saved hundreds of dollars and also just had a, you know, kind of different use of space. Yeah, we can talk about some cooking stuff because I would say that our cooking situation um, is probably pretty intense consi- um, compared to most people. So we have a cuckoo rice cooker. So we have a dedicated rice cooker. Um, we have a Vitamix blender. We have those two instant pots. We also have um, we have a popcorn maker. We also have uh, a griddle. So if we want to like grill sausages or um, you know, sandwiches or anything like that. Like a George um, within, Foreman grill kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like a George Foreman. Um, and then we also have an air fryer outside, which is kind of like your kind of like your toaster oven. Okay. So if we want to bake something, we can bake it in there. Um, so yeah, we've got a considerable amount of cooking appliances. And what's really cool is that we're able to run all that stuff on our solar system. So we're able to design it in such a way that we can run everything on electric, which is really unique about our tiny house as well. So our water heating, our heating and our cooling, which are the two biggest energy consumers in a, in a home, and then all of our cooking appliances and stuff like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and there's there are a lot of people out there, myself included, who have reservations about using propane. Um, and so being able to both heat and cool and cook without it is is a feat for sure. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, just because of the the limitations of the size of a tiny house, um, I wasn't able to mount all of our solar panels on the house. So I actually had to build a racking system outside of it because we have about 15 300-watt panels. And our solar system was, yeah, it was probably about fourteen or $15,000. So it wasn't like a cheap investment, but it is something that does give us the freedom and we don't have any power lines anywhere, which is really kind of cool. Um, so the allure of living off grid, um, some people can be like, oh, I really want to live off grid, but just understand that the financial costs can be quite substantial. And the reason why is because you have to pay for everything up front. So if you're, so if you're just getting electricity from the grid, 
you're essentially just kind of paying these little monthly installments. Whereas like if you're paying for a solar system, um, for ours specifically, like it would take 10 years to essentially kind of pay it back in a sense so that like, I'm just trying to do the math. I think it works out to about like over a 10 year period, it works out to about, uh, around a hundred and something dollars a month. So that's kind of how I look at it. Like we just paid for 10 years of electricity up front rather than paying it month to month. Right. The payout is is after that. Or it's, you know, if not everything is about the finances and if you, you know, ideologically like the idea of being off grid, then you get that benefit right away. Absolutely. So, yeah. And it just might. And even just for costs, like if you live in a place where you know, power lines are not very accessible to you, it can be considerably more expensive to have grid power brought in. It could be, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 just to have the power brought into where you need it. So that's also another consideration as well. So will the, the big house run off the same solar system? Will you expand it so that it can support both homes? How are you going to work that? So that the current solar system is designed specifically just for this tiny house and for the for its use. So for the for the bigger house, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a grid tied a grid tied solar system. So we are going to have power brought in. So it's at our lot line. So it's not going to cost too much. But there is lots of different companies that you can that you can look at that do grid tied systems. So Tesla and Solar City, that's one company. And then another one that I'm going to be working with is a company called Sunrun. So they can actually install solar systems with zero dollars down and essentially they become your power company. Um, I know with Sunrun specifically, they will look at your power bill and then you only have to pay 70 percent of what your expected power bill is going to be. So that's an, another way of kind of, you know, getting off kind of getting off the grid in a sense where you are generating uh, solar power, which I love solar power. I think it, it's so freaking cool that just harnessing the power of the sun runs everything in our house. Like, it's just one of the coolest things because when we first moved out here, um, we didn't have any electrical setup except for just running off of a generator. So if you've ever lived on a generator for an extended period of time, I think, yeah, it was about three or four months. And then you go to the silent power, this the, the clean silent power of solar. It's just like, it's like the nicest thing in, in the world. So both you and Hannah are online entrepreneurs. Um, and I'm sure that a good internet connection is super important. So how are you getting your internet out there? That's a very good question. So we've had a few paid services that, that we've invested in that didn't necessarily work out. So there's one company called Y Power that services a lot of places around the United States, um, specifically in like rural places. And it's like a microwave connection um, to like a local town where there's like a tower. Um, we tried that out for a while, just over a year, and the upload speeds and the download speeds weren't really worth it considering how expensive it was. It was like $100 a month, and it was like a 12 megabit download and like a 5 megabit upload. So like if you're like, just to kind of give you some reference, um, if I was like in Tucson, my download and upload would probably be eh, over 100 megabit download and probably at least 20 megabit upload. And that's, you know, 60 or $70. So for what you get, it's, it's, it's quite expensive. Um, so what we actually use 
um, which has been much faster than Y power. And it actually ends up being cheaper as we just use the hotspots on our cell phones. Um, so we're, we're with T-Mobile and specifically where we're at, we're, we have a really good connection to T-Mobile. And what's great is I don't think they offer this anymore, probably because of people like us, is that they had an un, essentially an unlimited plan. So like when they meant like unlimited, it was like unlimited, unlimited, like tethering no, and all no that kind of stuff. No throttling at all. Um, so it was like an extra $25 a month on top of our cell phone plans. And there are months where between all the streaming and uploading and downloading that I do, it's been over 300 gigabytes and I don't notice any throttling. Wow. So, so with a typical cell phone plan, um, it's usually around 22 gigabytes that they'll start throttling you back. So I go obviously well above and beyond and I don't, think they offer that anymore because somebody who worked for T-Mobile um, who followed my YouTube channel, they messaged me about it and they're like, don't ever get rid of that cell phone plan. Like don't ever disconnect that extra add on because you've been grandfathered into it. Yeah. If you ever get rid of it, you're never getting it back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure after they see my usage, they're like, God, this guy is using th like two, 300 gigabytes a month. Like this is nuts. <laughs> It's fine. You're making up for all the grandmas who have a two gigabyte a month plan and use like 20 megabytes. I, I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad for any telecoms. I, I, I don't feel I don't feel bad at all. I love it. So, um, yeah, because like with because we don't have like cable or anything like that. So all the all the videos that we watch like on YouTube, on Netflix and I watch a lot of, you know, sports on ESPN. Like, I don't know, I just I just stream everything. And so if you're constantly streaming stuff, then obviously you're going to be going through quite a bit of data. But, um, you know, so far, like that's been the best solution for us is just using the hotspots on our phone. Yeah, the LTE cell phone Internet connection is surprisingly fast. Absolutely. And I think we, our, our we're talking over is, it right now. Absolutely. We are right now. So it's totally fine. Um so I think our download is somewhere around 20 to 25 megabit download. And then I've measured our upload speed and it's typically around 12. And so especially when we're uploading videos to YouTube, because a lot of them can be over a gigabyte and it can take on, on the old Y power that we had, even though it was unlimited bandwidth. So we could upload and download as much as, as we wanted. It would take three or four hours to upload a video. Whereas like with our cell phone plans, it's typically 30 30 minutes, I'd say. Nice. So one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three resources, so like books or people, YouTube channels, that helped you out along the way? I know you already mentioned uh, Jake and Kiva, their channel, which is awesome, and actually they were guests on the show a couple months ago. Are there any other resources that, that helped you out that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would certainly just keep uh, just keep watching YouTube. So YouTube is a great free resource where you can get so much insight and really see. Um, I just want to say like everyday people, not necessarily construction pros, do a lot of the things that you may want to do with your tiny house. But also watching certain videos um, from professionals can be very enlightening as well. So you know, installing a window, installing a door, which you might just look at it and be like, oh, I have no idea how to do that or doing some electrical stuff, I would certainly gravitate towards somebody who is kind of more of a professional um, or for, for plumbing as well. 
I would say YouTube is is certainly one of the best resources. Um, and try to find some good books. Like I mentioned your book, Tiny S Decisions, which was really good in the development stage. So trying to decide um, what was all the different components and it really gave me a really good idea of um, how I wanted to proceed. So definitely good resources like that. Um, other than that, yeah, it was mainly just YouTube and just watching a few focused channels. And Jake and Kiva, I knew because Jake is, he. I don't know if he's still an electrician, but he was at the time. Um, is that I knew just from watching his videos that I knew he was so thorough and he really took a lot of great care. So try to find channels like that where people, they're not just like, oh, you know, like that's out an inch. We'll figure it out later. Um, try to find people that take a lot of great care because a lot of mistakes that you may make on the ground and as you start building the tiny house up, you start to notice them over time. So like there's like a few little boo-boos that I made like when I was laying out the frame of the trail, um, the framing on, that sits on top of the trailer. So where our floor is or kind of like the flooring rafters, I guess you'd call them. Like there's little things that I, little mistakes that I made down there that I noticed when I was even doing the sheathing and the roof. So little things like that. So really try to focus around people that take great care because that's always really important. And then you'll come out with a much better end product. Yeah, and it seems that it's important that you find trusted sources. And I would say, whenever I've gone to YouTube to learn how to do a, a specific job, I've always watched at least two, if not three, because you know you really have no idea, no way of knowing if the person is actually doing it right or knows what they're talking about until you either get a sense and you trust them or you can compare what they do to other people and just say, like, does this match up? Mm-hmm. And, and it can... It can be kind of troubling at times because you'll see that different people do things in a different way. And there are multiple ways of doing the same thing. So just understand that as well. There's different ways of installing a door. There's different ways of installing a window. And that can also depend on what type of window that you get or what type of door that you get. So just understand that there are going to be some differences um, with how people do certain things. So there are more that more more ways to do things right than there than you may think. Well, absolutely. Um, I think we're going to leave it there. I've really I've been loving chatting with you, uh, Derek Howlett. Where can people find you online? So you can find me on YouTube. I am the Handyman with two E's instead of a Y. I'm also on Instagram as well. So just at Handyman with an underscore at the end. Cool. And I will link to everything from the show notes page. Derek Howlett, thanks so much for being a guest on the show today. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ethan. And thanks so much for all, all the resources that you've put out. Like your book helped me out a lot um, when I was designing and building this tiny house. Thank you so much to Derek Howlett for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including links to Derek's YouTube channel, Hannah's Instant Pot Cookbook, and all the other resources that Derek mentioned at thetinyhouse.net slash 053. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 053. And I just want to remind you that the Tiny House Bundle ends tomorrow, Saturday, April 6th at 12 p.m. Eastern sharp. And this bundle contains $983 worth of Tiny House plans, ebooks, videos, and courses. It's really the best bundle yet, and it all goes away on Saturday. So if you are thinking about building a tiny house, 
or you're dreaming of a tiny house and you want to learn more, there is a wealth of information in this bundle for you. So to learn more, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash bundle. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash bundle, which will expire on Saturday, April 6th at noon. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.